0: As you're finding your seat, you can grab your Bible. You can turn to Psalm 36. That's our passage this morning, Psalm 36. If you have a device, you can go to the ESV, English Standard Version. That's what we're going to be going through. And if you have your bulletin, you like to take notes, we have a bunch of uh, lines for you right here. We don't do an outline, we just do lines. We want you to write down the things that God presses into your heart without me telling you what those things should be. Uh, So that's why we keep it blank. You can also check out our preaching calendar uh, next week, we're going to, uh, or the week after next, I should say, we're going to start a, another series taking us through June and July through the parables of Jesus. Next week, we have an amazing pastor, Pastor Michael Crawford from Baltimore, is coming out to preach for us. So uh, that is not the week to skip because the big guy's not going to be in the pulpit. That's the time to come and actually bring some friends, invite some family. It's going to be a really great time. Well, we're going to be talking about the love of God this morning. Uh, the burden that I have is I don't really feel like I... I I, I have what it, what it takes to say what needs to be said about the love of God. That's not being self-deprecating. That's just being honest about tackling a topic as wide as this uh, just for one week. But we know that God is going to work because we're going to be going to uh, his word. So the reason why we've been learning about what God is like is because we want to better know the God who best knows us. And not only best knows us, but loves us and calls us to Him. The problem is that we fall back, we default into thinking wrongly about what God is actually like. So all of us are battling that constantly, which is attributing things to God that don't line up with His attributes. And that wrong thinking is actually, it's inbred in us because we were born, all of you were born with a sin nature, a sin nature that if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, we understand that it was inherited from our parents, from Adam and Eve, that among other things, it draws us toward creating God in our own image, okay? Making God into something that we are comfortable with. And so our image of God means this, as we kind of step through some of the attributes that we've already gone through, our image of God means that we make him less holy and more common like us. It means that we make him less knowledgeable and more unsure about everything like we are. We make him less sovereign and more out of control like us. We make him less wrathful and more tolerant of sin like we are. We make him less gracious and more wage earner like we are of one another. And what this does is give us a God that we are more comfortable with, but not a God who rules over us. Not a God who rules over our lives. Not a God who we actually run to for comfort in our affliction and in our weakness. So today we're going to close our series... Looking at God's love, which again, like I said earlier, is probably his most recognized, but possibly least understood of his attributes. So, we want to start with asking this question. So, you're going to give me a second here to build in to uh, Psalm 36, but we want to ask this question what exactly is God's love? And then, based on that, what kind of spiritual and practical implications does it have for those who have received it versus those? reject it when they actually are just simply rejecting God himself. And we're going to see a contrast in Psalm 36 between these two things. A guy named A.W. Pink, an old theologian, this is what he said about God's love. He said, it is not simply that God loves, but that he is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes, but is his very nature, and then Pink goes on to say, building on 1 John 4:8, 8, uh, where the apostle John tells us that God is love, Pink is just saying, this is who God is. This is his very nature. Um, it's not that he's love-flavored, right? So we don't think of God and we think, oh, yeah, you know, he's just that guy that uh, loves us on his good days. Now, let me just make a confession to you. I... I I love flavored things, right? Like, I loved grape-flavored things. I love grape-flavored candy. Let me just admit it to you right now. You know what else I love? I love birthday cake-flavored ice cream. I mean, I know that's putting me in the category of, like, a four-year-old right now, but I I like that. Now, here's the thing. It's grape-flavored candy. It's not grapes. You know, and birthday cake-flavored ice cream is not really birthday cake. By the way, I love grapes, and I love birthday cake just to qualify that. But it's not really those things. It's flavored. It's not the actual substance of what I'm eating. So, based on that then, if God is love, if he embodies love, if his very nature is love, how do we define this love? This is what John Piper says. He says, The most beautiful love in the world, he says, is the divine love of God because it paid the highest price for completely undeserving enemies to give us the longest and greatest happiness in his presence. So that's how John Piper defines love. So we define God's love then based on that as a demonstrated transformative love. So follow me here. When undeserving enemies of God, you and me, receive God who is love, they are transformed then into happy, humble, self-denying servants who become more like God, who is love. So, as new creations in Christ, we are shaped by something. We are shaped by the substance of God, who is love, right? It is in alive love. It's not just any kind of love, right? It's not just having like an affection for something. It's not just Ronnie Martin loving grape flavored candy, it's in alive love. It's a transformative, demonstrative love. Because in reality, it is a person who controls those who are no longer controlled by their former passions. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, for the love of Christ controls us, it says. Because we have concluded this, Paul says, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, why? 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 Well, he says it, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's a picture of the gospel, the good news right there. So to be controlled, man, I I mean, I don't know about you, but when somebody says, hey, Ronnie, I'm going to control you, I I don't just go, yeah, that sounds great. What do you want me to do? And tie some strings on my arms and start puppeting me around. Like I don't like that word control just like you. I push back against it. It's a rather uninviting word. Until you understand that before Christ controls a person, so if you are somebody that's been saved, before Christ controls you, you've been controlled by sin. You're not free. You're a puppet, right? You're sin's puppet. You're not free. You're being told what to do. And guess what? You obey it almost every time. Paul mentions in Romans 6 that before God saves a person, they were slaves. They were slaves to sin. But then he says this, having been set free from sin, they have become slaves of righteousness. So here's the point. God frees us from slavery to sin by making us slaves to righteousness, who then receive an inseparable abundance of God's steadfast love which is what we learn about when we read Romans chapter 8. So then the question then remains, how is this inseparable love, how is it demonstrated through us then? How is it seen? How is it experienced? Because somebody can say, no, I have the love of God in me, right? Man, I, saw, you know, I, mean, I became a member of a church. I signed a list. I went through catechism. Man, I have the love of God in me. I grew up in a Christian home. Man, if you're like me, you know, I got to a certain age. My whole life was Christian everything. Man, we were in church on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, Friday nights. Everything was Christian. I mean, man, we, the, all of our friends were Christian. We were eating Christian food. I was wearing Christian clothing. Our cars were practically saved. Like, everything was Christian, right? Like, that's kind of how, how we think of it, but yet... What we learn about God's love is that it has a transformative and a demonstrative effect in somebody to show that it's actually real in the hearts of the people that it allegedly saves. So how is it demonstrated? Well, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul again, he says, love is what? It's patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. And then he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, is how Paul concludes this. So what we see here then in summary is that love is the progression of God's people. God's people are being progressed into deeper, demonstrative, transformational Love. Are you guys following me? Okay, so if this is the progression then of a man or woman of whom the love of God, that is God shaping and transforming in demonstrative ways, then therefore the opposite must be true. All right? The opposite must be true. There must be a backwards progression in the head, in the heart, and in the hands of a person who has rejected God by refusing to trust in Jesus and therefore does not have the love that is God in him, right? Now, a couple of years ago, coming to Ohio, man, I, I did not know that the sun didn't shine. Uh, as little as it did. I mean, I, I suspected it. I'd spent a lot of time in Seattle over the years. I didn't know that this was worse than that. I didn't realize that. Um, so what happened was um, I, I went through this season of about a year in my life where I just had no energy and I'm turning white and I'm just sluggish all the time and I'm depressed. And you guys are saying, what, there's something weird about that? That's just how we've all been our whole lives. Um, so I go to the dock and maybe some of you, maybe I've told this story before, but I go to the doctor and this is what he said. He said, You have the lowest vitamin D count I have, wait for it, ever seen. Ever seen. I said, Wait a minute. Like, I'm the guy coming from the land of sunshine and, and like oranges and stuff. Oh, that's Florida. But, uh, and he goes, He goes, this, and I go, This is the lowest vitamin D count you've ever seen? He said, Yeah, actually it is. I said, Well, you need to. Treat more people then, because that's crazy. So the, the point, though, is that without vitamin D, there was a progression of unhealth, right, due to a lack of something. So if there's a lack of something in our lives, there's going to be a progression leading us a particular direction because of the lack, right? So... This is what David gets into right when we jump into Psalm 36. I know some of you guys are like, any day now, Ronnie, we're going to open up the Bible and read the text. We're going to do that right now. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to learn two things about the love of God in Psalm 36. Number one, we're going to see that unrepentant men and women become seared against it. And then number two, we're going to see that repentant men and women remain secure in it. So let's pick up with verse one here in Psalm 36. It says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Let's just stop right there. So our first point is this. Unrepentant men and women become seared against it. And what you'll notice here as we just dove right into this is that David feels no need to qualify what he said, doesn't he? He just jumps right in. He doesn't do what we often do, which is try and justify what God does not approve of. He just gets right to it. He begins with this word transgression. And this is a word that means a human deviation from the expressed will and desire of God. It means human deviation from the expressed will and desire of God. The book of James tells us that our desire is what we start with. And it's our desire that gives birth to sin. So what that means for us is that people don't just oops their way into sin, right? They don't just slip on a banana peel and aw shucks their way into sinful behavior. That's not how it has its origins. There's always a deviation that begins someplace. And the Bible tells us it begins in the heart, which is why sin is subtle, right? It's why it's subtle. It's why it can't always be seen at first. There's always a progression. Look at the progression that follows here in verses one through four. It says basically in verse one, with his mind, he believes God is dead. That God is not there, God is not taking notice. In verse 2, with his eyes, he believes his actions will go unnoticed. So there's a progression there from his mind to his actions. And then verse 3, with his mouth, it says he speaks lies. He commits untruth with the words of his mouth. And then verse 4, we see that with his hands, he commits shameful acts. So David here is describing a wicked person, a person that has not humbled themselves before the Lord, and we see a progression of sin that happens, that begins in the desire of the heart and then becomes something that is just pouring out of their mouth and their hands. And it results in increasingly sinful behavior. So what begins in the heart extends to the head and the hands, and what happens is consciences eventually become seared Consciences eventually become seared against everything that God stands for, right? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now the word seared here means to to, to make insensitive, to make insensitive. So in simple terms, it means someone who has become indifferent and someone who now is unaffected by the things that God both hates and loves. Now, I want to chat for a minute about meat. Okay, that's M-E-A-T, like meat, like the things we grill. Now, if you grew up in the Martin household, you have grown up with everything cooked, extra well done. And, I, you know, I'm probably being generous. It was like extra, extra well done. My mom literally scorched our meat. Our meat was like the grape nuts cereal of of meat fresh out of the box, right? Our meat was like biting into impenetrable rocks of meat. And worse yet, everybody in the family but me liked it. Like they liked it. They wanted her to cook that way. Now, I'm not not trying to make a a blanket statement about my family with me. We'll save that for another sermon. Um, But this is what can happen to a person whose conscience has been seared to the point that they think and they act out the things that God hates. Now, it's easy for us to read this, read these first four verses, and think, man, this, just, this sounds too extreme, Ronnie. This sounds too extreme for the average person. This, this feels, it feels more like your favorite serial killer or evil world dictator, right? Except when we get to verse 10, right? When David says, oh, continue your steadfast love to who? to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. So categorically, lest we remove ourselves too far from what we're reading here, these first four verses can be applied to anyone who does not know God or is considered upright in heart the way God declares people to be upright in heart. Now, are there, are there different levels of sin, right? There are, yes. Yes. Some of us can sin in just egregious and grievous ways and do far more harm to people and to communities and to nations than other people do. So we're not here to discuss sort of the the level of sin or the level of damage that particular sins do over other sins. What we're trying to do is stay in the realm of the heart where desire begins and then gives birth to all kinds of crazy sin whether it's sin that comes at more of a garden variety, sin that we would just look at it and go, and other sin where we stand back and go, okay, this is somebody that needs to be locked up for life. The point is is that desire for sin begins in the heart, and there is a progression. And that progression can have different levels, but there is nonetheless a progression of sin. And so the most comfortable thing for us to do when we read something like this is to try to create different categories. Try to create bigger categories of sin that are somehow more easier for us to digest and feel self-righteous about, right? Um, But here's what's interesting. Pride, which is really the the heart of everything we're seeing here in verses 1 through 4, it it operates, like we said earlier, from the position of subtlety, doesn't it? Like, for instance, when we go to Genesis chapter 3, when we go to Adam and Eve, what was the sin that sunk mankind into ruin we've talked about this before at face value it was eating an apple now god said uh don't eat this apple and so what happened eve ate the apple gave some to adam and adam ate the apple so on one hand we can go really god two bites into a red delicious and this is the undoing of the human race like that's it i mean nobody would nobody got killed There was no act of violence that we can see. All they did was take a bite out of a piece of fruit that you said don't take a bite out of. So it wasn't really just a bite of fruit. It was everything that had been conjured up in their heart from a desire, it said, for them to be like God, to commit rebellion and treason in a sense, commit murder against the things of God. That's really what was happening right there. That's really what happened in the same progression we see here, right? The same progression that we see here, we see in Adam and Eve. What did we see? Well, pride spoke deep into the heart of Eve. In that moment, Adam and Eve didn't fear God. They didn't honor him. They didn't believe his words. They gave into the flattery of the serpent, believing they would be like God. They didn't think their sin would be noticed. It's everything we're reading right here. They ceased to act with wisdom and do what was good in God's eyes. They did not reject evil. So if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and we get all the way to Psalm 36, and we move all the way to where we are now, we've seen that same progression of sin. So it's not the level of sin that we're talking about. It's that it's sin at all. And it mars the truth of God in our hearts and causes us to act shamefully. There's always a progression to sin, that begins with an unrepentant heart that leads to a seared conscience and ends with a man or woman on just this oblivious path to destruction. So we don't want to discount the subtle poison of pride and the depths of which it infects the hearts of those who are not controlled by the love of Christ. So unrepentant men and women become seared against God's love. But number two, repentant men and women remain secure in it. Let's pick up in verse five. It says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge In the shadow of your wings, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Let me just start here by saying that David gives this incredible summary of God's love. He first describes it as the the plentifulness of God's love, and then in verses 7 through 9, the provision of God's love. So let's just dive into the first part of that, the plentifulness of God's love in verses 5 or 6. Let me just say this, okay? Let me open it with this. If you wonder if you've gone too far, if you wonder if God could possibly receive you into his arms from the life you used to or currently live, or for decisions you made years ago, because the consequences of your actions feel like condemnation being heaped upon your head day by day, if you feel like God is constantly disappointed in you, because you don't pray like you should, because you don't read the Bible as often as you should, because you don't serve the church as much as you should, because you don't give as much of your resources as you think God would require of you. Here is what is happening here. David is giving us a proper characterization of God for us, for all of us in those places. He's saying, this is what God's love is like, dude. That's my paraphrase. He says, it's steadfast. It doesn't lack consistency. It doesn't have a short reach. No matter how high your sin or how deep your debt God's righteousness, he says, is as high as the mountains and as deep as the oceans. Not only that, but his salvation extends to all of his creation. It saves both man and beast. I don't have time to flesh out what that means. There's no other love with these kinds of measurements, is what David is saying. God's love is plentiful. Why? Why? Because God is love and God is a plentiful God. And you know where we see? You know where we see this plentifulness? We see it most plentifully in Christ. Ephesians 3, 18 through 19 says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that's those who are believers in Jesus, what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses. Knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, if you wonder, if you wonder at at the measurements of God's love, if you wonder if God's love is, is deep and wide and vast enough to cover everything that is representative of your life from the past to the present, all the screw ups, all the muck ups all the things you think, the pornography in your mind that turns and turns and turns over all things. The answer is yes, it does. It covers it. It covers it. Because what we are supposed to know is the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge of what we can comprehend so that we can be filled with the fullness of God. So this is the plentifulness of God's love for those who come before him and say, God, help me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Secondly, the provision of God's love, verses 7 through 9. David is saying, like a mother bird. So he gives this sensitive, just beautiful, poetic picture of like a mother bird who shelters her young under her wings. This describes the love of God the Father. There's feasting when we come into God's presence on His abundant mercy and grace. We get to drink from the delights that come from reading and meditating on His Word, which is a fountain for us when we partake of it that will never run dry. As much as we drink of it, and it's available to us, and as much as we can drink of it, and then we see the light of his truth. In his light we see light. We see the light of the truth of God illuminating all the dark patches and places of our hearts so that we can see, we can finally see the light of his goodness, his greatness, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his love. So God creates this illuminating light by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we can see the light of God in all of these other attributes that he pours into our hearts By his fullness. This is the security of the repentant man or woman. Proverbs 4, 18-19 says this. Listen, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. How epic in Lord of the Rings is that? Which shines brighter and brighter until full day. But then he says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness they do not know over what they stumble so the light of christ there is the light of christ doesn't illuminate the path of those who have rejected god's love by keeping themselves back from humbling themselves before christ so to summarize if you've come into a saving relationship with god by repenting By believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the love that now makes up the reality of your day-to-day existence. And what we want this to do, okay, is we want to let this challenge what we think about God's love because your view of it, my view of it, is probably too small. It's probably too self-centered. It's probably too like yourself. It probably fits into the definitions that you've acquired over the years from the books you've read, from the movies you've watched, from the people you've hung out with, from the experiences that you have, but they don't paint an accurate picture of what in actuality is the love of God. And we wrestle with this love because we think it's something that ebbs and flows according to his feelings and mood because that's how our love ebbs and flows, right? But here's what we have to remember. When when God saves you, listen, it was because He loved you. And because He loved you, He's going to keep loving you after He saves you in the most enduring, heartfelt, and practical ways imaginable. And what's David doing here? David was banking on God's love to deliver on its promises. Are we? Are we banking on it the way David banked on it? Or do we think God's love is fickle? Do you think God's love is fickle, like like yours? Inconsistent, like yours? Hot and cold, like yours? Transactional, like we learned last week, like yours? Instead of being covenantal? Instead of being something that he gives to us, not based on what we've given back to him? Look what the prophet Isaiah said in, in chapter 43, verses 1 through 4, he says this, "'But now thus says the Lord,' He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. He's talking to Israel as the nation. He says this, fear not, this is God talking, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned in the flame Shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He goes on to say, You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, he says. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. You see the depths there that a holy God extends his love to an unholy people to bring into the presence of his holiness. It's phenomenal. God's love keeps us close to God. It also keeps us from things that create distance between us and God. Look what David prays at the end here in verses 10 through 12. He says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So God's love keeps us from things. Number one, it keeps us from pride. Number two, it keeps us from the fate of prideful men. Well, what does being kept from pride mean? Well, here's a quote from a guy named Paul Miller who wrote a book I think we have out there called The Praying Life, and this is what he said. He said, if Satan's basic game plan is pride, seeking to draw us into his life of arrogance, then God's basic game plan is humility, drawing us into the life of his son. So one of the benefits of God's love is that it also keeps us from the very pride that originally kept us from his love. And then secondly, it keeps us from the fate of prideful men. I think we have to really understand and grapple with the truth that God's people face a different fate than those who have rejected God. You have to start seeing that your future is different. Why? Because you are not left with a future without God. You have a present with God that leads you to a future with God that extends to an eternity with God. Psalm eleven seven says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. That's not an empty promise. That's a promise of hope that where God is, His righteous people will be. And right now, before we see him face to face in glory, he's with us. And we see his face through the words of this book that he wrote so that our faces could shine and reflect his very face, his very loving face. Do we we understand that? Do we understand that? Everything we need to know about God's love that we can even comprehend is written for us here in the words that he gave us. And so this leads us to close with these two points. Number one, God's love can be trusted. And number two, God's love should be treasured. So if we were to summarize Psalm 36, this is the application that we want to take from it. This is what it's implying for us, is that God's love can be trusted. So let me start with this question. How can we be sure of God's love? How can we be sure of it? This is a quote from Jared C. Wilson. He says this, the cross is proof that God loves sinners. Because what do we know about Jesus? Well, we know that it says Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. He was numbered among those who deviate from the will of God. But He didn't remain fallen like unrepentant transgressors will someday have as the fate of their life. He didn't remain fallen. But He rose... And he stands upright. And he calls us now out of our fallen condition to stand upright with him. He rose so that his love could be known by those who are known by God. Who is what? Love. First John 4, 9 through 10 says this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Don't get cocky. Not that you did something, all of a sudden you woke up one day and you just had this you know, this unshrunk, three sizes, too small heart, this, this lack of grinchy heart, and you just said, God, I've decided today it's a great day to love you because everything's going so magnificent, or it's a great day to love you because everything is in the trash can. That's not what happened. That's not what he says. He says, in this is love, not that God loved, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. How did he demonstrate that love? It says he sent his son to be the propitiation For our sins, to stand in the way of our sin so that the wrath of God would bear down on him and not us. So let me just present this to you as a thought. If not for God's love, why God? Right? Do you think about the God that it is that you serve? Do you ever take that into consideration when you come here or you're anticipating coming to church or you're anticipating serving at church or you're anticipating opening your Bible or praying or getting together with other believers? If not for God's love, why God? Why God? The reason why any relationship flourishes or flounders in your life is because of the willingness to sacrifice for the other person. It's the the willingness to sacrifice for the sake of love. So, follow me here. Imagine if there was a love that never failed. Because it was embodied by a man who lived a life of unfailing love for an unfaithful group of people. He chose to give his life for. It would tell you something about his heart, wouldn't it? It would tell you something about his motivations, his character, what his love was like. The problem is this. The problem is that the world and the church, all right, let's just, let's just insert ourselves in that category. We want a God whose love is separated from his holiness, right? We want a God whose love gives us license to do what we want and be okay with whatever we choose to do. But if that was true, could God's love be trusted? Well, that was rhetorical. The answer is obviously no, it it couldn't be trusted. True love must rejoice in truth or it ceases to be true love. Ultimately, we can trust God's love to continue to be truly steadfast like David prays because God's love is not dependent on us. It doesn't break down when we break down. It doesn't fall when you fall. It doesn't fail when you fail. It doesn't collapse when we collapse. God's love can be trusted because it's contained in the unfailing personhood of God that we see and experience through Christ on the cross. Number two, finally. God's love can be trusted and God's love should be treasured. John 14, 15 says... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So how do we treasure anything? When you think of that word, I just want to treasure this particular person or this particular thing. How do we treasure anything? Well, we, we treasure something by placing utmost importance and weight on it. So we, we treasure God's love then by obeying God's Word. Well, man, you look down at Psalm 36 and you look at the author of Psalm 36 and you realize the author of Psalm 36 is David. What about Dave, right? David didn't always obey God, did he? I mean, to say that he made a mess of things in his life is like the understatement of all time. Literally the understatement of all time. But what did David do? What did David do as a way to treasure God's love? David always came back to God. He always humbled himself before God, knowing that God would never despise a humble or a contrite heart. David treasured God's love enough to go before him and submit to him that he was in desperate need of his love to continue in his life. See, because here's the reality for us. Only a humble heart is able to bear the heavy weight of God's love. Is it hard for you to imagine that God could ever love you? It's hard for me to imagine that for me. Because what you guys probably don't realize is as I study this and I read this, I realize how much I don't understand God's love. And how everything I'm saying, I'm just saying to myself. Because I don't grasp it the way I should. I think of it incorrectly. I insert my own meanings and my own feelings into it. I don't see it. It's hard to imagine that God could ever love us. But that's why we go back to the cross. The cross makes God's love imaginable, doesn't it? It's like seeing the ocean for the first time. Has that ever happened to you guys? It had to have if you were born here but it's like seeing the ocean for the first time. You've never imagined anything so vast when you're standing on the sand and the sun is setting. You've never imagined anything so infinite and so all-consuming. God's love will continue to totally consume those whose hearts have been humbled by the transforming power of Christ on the cross. This is an inseparable love. Love applied by grace alone that comes with the assurance that all things will work out for good to those who have been called according to his purpose because nothing according to Romans 8 can separate us from the love of God in Christ. This is what God's love is like and this is the good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your love is unlike our love. We thank you that we can come before you today with all of our histories and all of our present circumstances and all the back-breaking scenarios that we carry into this warehouse every week. And we thank you that we have a love that draws us back in humility, Lord, before the face of God, before the cross of Christ, and so, Lord, we, uh, we come before you in dependence and repentance, and we say, God, save us. God, don't let us think wrongly about who you are. Don't let us be people who walk mischaracterizing all of these beautiful attributes that you carry with you that serve to benefit us as people who have committed their lives to you. God, you are love. We see that in Scripture. But we're also human and we have a hard time understanding what that looks like. We very often don't feel it. We have a hard time comprehending it. But we also know, Lord, that when we pursue you, that when we come before you, when we ask these things of you, that you would show your love to us. We also know that by your light, we are given a light that allows us to start seeing all the different ways and all the different areas that your love has invaded us. So God, do that again for us today because we need you to invade us. We need you to invade our hearts. We need you to invade those dark chambers that have been left undealt with, that have been left unrepented for. And Lord, we need you to create light in there so that we can see and so we can look into your face. We can come before you in repentance and we can know that we are received and accepted by you and that nobody... Nobody can take us from your hand. This is the truth. This is the gospel. This is why we are a people that you have set apart as holy. This is why we are a church that you are building and the gates of hell will not destroy. God, let our community see this light so that they may also come to know you and the love of Christ and be controlled by it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Together we said, amen.